when Pastor Larry announced that he was uh, going to be starting a series of messages that covered the whole Bible in a year, because I do what I do, uh, teaching Old Testament, I figured, well, probably in the summer months he will call on me to do one of the books, maybe, or, or, or two, maybe Psalms, a huge corpus to have to go through in just a, a short period of time, just one sermon, or Jeremiah and Lamentations, perhaps together. Um, but then, of course, he did uh, Genesis and Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, and so I thought, well, you know, I'd... so when he asked me to teach uh, this week, <laughs> thank you too much. <laughs> when we think about uh, the study of God's Word and uh, what happens on a Sunday morning, we're used to very, uh, very much a shorter passage, much shorter passage, and a verse-by-verse, verse, more of an exposition that grows out of the language of the text. And that's, uh, that's what we're enjoined on to provide. That's what the Scripture asks us to do. And so the question might come up, well, how does that relate, that verse-by-verse verse expository preaching relate to this very quick book study? Uh, one whole, the, the, the whole book in a sermon, or six books in a sermon. And we are committed to exegetical, expository sermons, but there's a value to getting an overview, the larger picture, so that when we go to the study of the passages, we're able to discern the message better, because we've got a sense of the overview, and we can see how the parts of our individual text uh, fit into that larger story. And then after we study those individual texts, we find that maybe we have to modify our, uh, what we thought was the big overview picture. Maybe we're able to, to enrich our understanding of the whole because we've looked at the parts. And then we go back into the parts again, and using that informing overview, we're able to study the parts better. And so there is a, a place for large overview type of sermons, and uh, as we're trying to do through the whole year, and then the more specifically focused on a particular psalm or a particular paragraph in Scripture, as we more often do. In thinking in terms of these books, six books, did I mention that already? Six, six books. Um, the number six just kept coming up. Uh, focused on that, I'm afraid. Um, in Israel's history, there, uh, early on in Samuel and Kings, the, the view tends to be very provincial. It tends to be very narrowly focused on Israel and the surrounding nations immediately touching it. That's normally where uh, the action is taking place, and there are six of those. There uh, is uh, Lebanon, that's where they got wood from the, for the temple. Um, the Philistia, well, Philistia, we've, we've heard about them all the way back in uh, Genesis. They're talking about the Philistines. Um, in, um, 
in the time of the judges, the Philistines were a problem. You recall that they had the technology to do iron where Israel didn't, and so they became very important, and they also became arch enemies of Israel. Goliath was a Philistine. By that I meant he was from Philistia. He was also a Philistine in that he acted rather crudely, but uh, Edom, Moab, and Ammon bordered to the south and the east. And the thing we need to know about these countries is they were related to Israel. Now, when I use the term Israel at this point, I'm referring to both parts of the kingdom together in its unity. And uh, these, these countries were related to Israel because you recall that Edom, that's the children of Esau, the brother of Jacob. Jacob was Israel. Esau was Edom. And so you have uh, brothers way back in the line. And Ammon and Moab... These were also related because these were children of Lot, and Lot was the nephew of Abraham. And so we have uh, Edom, a perennial enemy to the south. We have Ammon and Moab. You recall Ruth last week. She was from Moab. Ammon, uh, that was a, a refuge place. If people, uh, we read uh, sometimes in Scripture that they committed an assassination or they did something, they ran to Ammon. They got across the river and they were safe. They were given, uh, they were harbored there. So those are countries that were that were close in. Now David, in the height of his, of his rule, ruled all of this and on up into, oh, did I mention Syria? Syria, we'll come back to Syria again. Syria and Damascus to the north. David ruled all of this area on up to the Euphrates River and back down. In fact, we're told that he took Hamet. Hamet was an administrative district in the north and that administrative district went all the way up to the Euphrates River. And in fact, he went over here and conquered a city, we're told, by the name of Tadmor because he wanted just a tad more. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I've had that inside for months. It just feels so good. <laughs> so good to get that one out. In, uh, in the latter part of our books, we, we encounter six other kingdoms. We have uh, Egypt, which all the way back to Moses is a factor, uh, Abraham even, interacting with Egypt. But Egypt becomes a greater power and, in fact, one of the, the controlling powers of the time of our story. Syria to the north, at the time of the, uh, the problem surrounding the day of, of Isaiah and the prophecy concerning the virgin having a son, it was uh, Syria was one of the players in that, as was Assyria. Assyria is called such because it's right next to Syria. Assyria is uh, a major power. And in fact, in our literature, the two major powers are Assyria and Egypt when we get past the time of Solomon. Those were the two countries on either side that, that controlled the agenda uh, a great deal in our reading. After this, we have, uh, well, Assyria is mentioned. The kings of Assyria are mentioned. One is uh, Tiglath-Pileser, but he's also called Pul, P-U-L. And I can only think that it, it, they nicknamed him that shorter name because uh, some scribe just didn't want to write Tiglath-Pileser, so we'll just nickname him Pul. And uh, another one is Sennacherib. Sennacherib is the king that lost 185,000 of his army in a night. Uh, Babylon, we, we have Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, and Belshazzar, the stories uh, surrounding Daniel and his three friends take place at this time. 
And also in our period uh, at the end of this, when we get to Chronicles, Persia is the power. And of course you remember Persia from the song, Oh no, what we gonna do? The king likes Daniel more. Doesn't anyone watch VeggieTales anymore? <laughs> Great source of theology. <laughs> Cyrus, Darius, Xerxes, these are all kings of Persia. And then a king will arise afterwards, after our period, the nation of Greece. And from Greece then, Rome would be the dominating power. So this is how it fits into the six larger kingdoms of the ancient world. It's also recognized that we've got six epochs, six periods of time during, this, uh, during our literature, the time of our literature. We have the uh, time of before you had a king. Uh, so we see Samuel operating as uh, a quasi-king, kind of a king at that period, but it uh, didn't have a formal person that was called a king. He was more of a, a priest prophet. Uh, we think of him as a prophet primarily. There is the time of the united uh, Israel where Saul and David and Solomon are ruling over that entire area. Then you have at the death of Solomon a division and this is where we begin to differentiate between Israel in the north, uh, also called Ephraim, uh, predominated, predominated by one of the children of Joseph, Ephraim. And then we have Judah in the south. That's the southern kingdom. And the two together for a time were side by side. Uh, after the north went into captivity into Assyria in the 700s, the south was left alone. It was just by itself as the people of God. And it surrounded Jerusalem. The temple was still intact. There was a point at which even Judah was taken into captivity into Babylon, finally in 586 B.C., and you had uh, no kingdom because the kingdom was in exile. You didn't have a Davidic priest. You didn't have a temple in Jerusalem. It was all gone. You had the remnant of the people of God was in Babylon. Some had gone into Egypt. And then finally in the Persian period, you recall that Persia uh, authorized the children of Israel, the Ju those who were from Judah and Israel, to go back into the land and build the temple. And um, though they were never a kingdom in that formal sense with an independent king, they did have kings, as it were. They had political rulers who were sort of governors of the line of David, still of the, of the Davidic household. But uh, they served as uh, kind of a quasi-king during that time. Uh, this period of time... Uh, God is restoring his people once again, and that would take place finally at about 539 B.C., and then we have a period of time where uh, you have about 100 years in which the story of Israel continues to go on, and then at a certain point, you have the prophet Malachi, and he is the final prophet, and you have the writings of Chronicles, which are the final books probably written on the Old Testament. So those are the... Uh, the six periods, just to focus some more of our, our um, writing, some more of our Bible in this period. It's during this last part where you have Judah as a single kingdom on through the restoration that you have the writing prophets. And so here we would have uh, just before the single king, just during the single kingdom and uh, uh, part of the divided kingdom, but on more so the sing uh, single kingdom, you've got you know, Isaiah. Jeremiah, 
Ezekiel, and the other prophets that are named, and we actually have a book with their name in the Old Testament. So just a little overview about the periods of time that are taking place and the powers that are concerned. There are also six topics which come to the fore, blessings and punishment. Uh, we've chosen to describe this as blessings and punishment rather than blessings and curses because that formula, we've already seen it in uh, the study of Deuteronomy. We saw it in the study of Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, where it talked about how God had given to the people blessings and curses under the treaty of Deuteronomy, the treaty language in Deuteronomy, where God had said, if you obey me and you follow my laws and your kings walk in my ways, I will bless you. You're going to have uh, flocks and herds and fertility and peace from your enemies, and I'll uh, bless you. But if you don't follow me, then I'm not going to bless you. I'm going to curse you, and you'll have no rain, and you'll have no crops, and the crops you have will be eaten by lice uh, and grasshoppers, and um, your enemies will rise up against you. We've chosen to call this uh, blessings and punishment because in a treaty, that in, when God gave the treaty, he's giving the word curses in a treaty sense. That is, the person making the treaty said, I will do good things for you if you obey me, and I'll do bad things for you if you don't. This blessings and curses in Deuteronomy differs from the curse that God placed upon the serpent in the garden. That was a curse concerning his destiny. When you get into the treaty language, curse means punishment. Bad things are going to happen. And we have the curses and blessings or curse, uh, blessings and punishments that God lays out in Deuteronomy. And those are played all the way through this time in our history, this Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles narrative. Because when they did obey God, things went well. And when they disobeyed God, things did not. So topics, uh, topics one and two, we've covered this already in the uh, previous sermon. But uh, the blessings and punishments we'll just uh, lightly touch over. We can see it in this little drawing. You've got the nation of Judah, the nation of uh, the nations of Assyria and Babylon. Remember God had said, if your king obeys me, things will go well, and if they don't, things will go poorly. Now, one thing we need to say about this drawing is that uh, this does not represent what it would look like if you went to the United Nations of that period of time because... Assyria should be way more powerful than, than the kingdom of Judah. It was the 800-pound gorilla of, of, the, of the empires in those days, as was Babylon. But with respect to its authority in the Holy Land, there were times when it exerted total control over the Holy Land, and there were times when it exerted almost no control. And it's at those times that the nation of Judah was allowed to flourish. And so we have, uh, we can see here Assyria is at a low point. It's at this low point that Jonah goes to minister there with his message. God used him to turn Assyria around so that Assyria could again become powerful. And at this point becomes more powerful than in the land, than Judah. But then you've got this lump right here. I really should say success. I don't think Hezekiah would, would want me to call him a lump. Hezekiah the lump. This is the success of the time of Hezekiah. Then you have Manasseh. In fact, let's get these names up here. You've got Manasseh, who is uh, 
rebelling against God uh, through much of his life. And then we have Josiah. And again, when you have a good king, you had success. And when you had a bad king, you had, uh, you, you had punishment. In the land, uh, this period of time with Hezekiah and Josiah was a very great uh, time. It's the silver age in Israel's history. It was a time of relatively great wealth, not like Solomon's, but relatively great wealth and relatively uh, industrious literary activity, we would assume, with that. Uh, let's see how Israel did. What do you think? Good kings or bad? Yeah, things, things look bad. Now, we need to nuance this by saying that God did not immediately, even at that time, zap people for their badness. He did, if there were a particularly grievous king, he would make bad things happen. And so you have Ahab, who's an awful king. And uh, he brings in a whole new system of idolatry on top of the, what's already been done in the land. Uh, Jezebel, his wife, brought that in with her when they married. And so God says through Elijah, no rain until Elijah says so. Well, that's one of those, those punishments that God had spoken of. Here he was off doing this stuff. Ahab was off doing this stuff. God says, no rain. You're not going to have rain. That means you're not going to have crops. That means you're not going to be powerful. There, were, there was, however, sometimes not that immediate judgment of God because God delighted to over a period of time, sent his prophets to warn, to convince. He sent great miraculous signs. He sent victories in battle graciously to his people so that his people would repent, but we know ultimately they did not repent of their ways, and God took them into exile. So that's the, that's the whole idea of uh, blessings and punishment that runs throughout this material. It's not surprising in a book that's called Samuel Kings and Chronicles of the Kings. There's a theme working here. We, we've got this word kingdom popping up. And so it, it, isn't, uh, uh, it isn't hard to know that this is a major theme within the book. And to think in terms of the kingdom, we need to locate it. Uh, we need to discuss it in its location and in its vocation. In its location, it is exactly along the trade routes that you would have to go through if you wanted to go to Europe or Egypt or Babylon. And beyond Babylon, there was probably some early trade even into Egypt, into uh, India. Now, we would think, well, why didn't they just take a, sh a boat from here to here? Well, you just don't travel that way. Even at the time of the New Testament, they would uh, very often just scallop the edge hitting the harbors because they didn't want to get outside of the view of land too far because bad things happen in the Mediterranean when you're in a small skiff. And so, oop, uh, we have anyone going here by boat is going to come through. They're going to dock at Joppa and Akko, and uh, uh, there, there are many harbors, but there are some here, and from there trade would go. And if you were going from Babylon down into Egypt, you had to go through either the way of the sea, which was right next to the Mediterranean Sea, that was a trade route, or the King's Highway, which was just on the other side of Jordan. Now, there are some who study the Old Testament, and they say, we can explain the periods of, 
of uh, wealth and strength in the land and weakness and poverty in the land just by natural forces. Because when Assyria was strong in the northeast or when Egypt was strong in the northwest or that when they were fighting against each other, of course, this middle ground would be weak, this middle land. And when they were kind of weak, maybe Egypt was going through a dynastic change or maybe over in Assyria they had problems on the eastern side of their border, well, then you've got uh, relative times of strength. But the, the testimony of Scripture is God is the one who is causing those things to happen. He is the one that is sovereign over the activities of the nations. By way of uh, vocation, Israel was to be a showcase of the mercy of God. If we can import information from Jeremiah, who was prophesying just before the southern kingdom fell and went into Babylon, Jeremiah said, um, God is saying through Jeremiah, you were to be my cummerbund around my waist, a sash, essentially, uh, a very uh, ornate belt, sash-type thing, because they would, they would uh, usually wear a fairly homespun, uh, inferior sort of material for an outer garment, but then if they were people of prominence uh, or wanted to appear to be so, they would get this sash that looked really fine. And that would say, oh, this person has money or this person has some sort of status because he's got this beautiful sash. It draws attention to the person. It's like a, a silk, hand-painted silk tie. It just drew attention to the person and said, I'm important. Uh, God says, you were around my middle as a sash. You were my cummerbund to show my glory. And you didn't do it. We see it in our material in 2 Samuel 7, who is like your people, like Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people to make for your, himself a name? Why did God do it? To make himself a name so that he would be famous. And to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your land? Why did God do it? He did it for himself. Before your people whom you redeemed for yourself out of Egypt, the nations and their gods... For you have made your people Israel your very own people forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. And again, we see in 1 Samuel 17, this is the contest between Israel and Philistia. This is the David and Goliath. Uh, David says, you're coming to me with all this warfare, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand in order that, this is the reason why God would do it, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with the sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. David understood that God would grant victory in order that the name of God would be magnified throughout the nations. In terms of the kingdoms of the world, in Chronicles we have this from Jehoshaphat. Then Jehoshaphat said, this is later on in Israel's history, Judah is by itself. Then Jehoshaphat said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not the God of heaven and do you not rule over all the kingdoms and the nations and in your hand there is not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? 
Now, he's asking questions there, but the obvious answer is, well, of course he is. Of course he's the one that works this way among peoples, and of course he's the one that no one can withstand. If we just take an inventory of some of the examples of what God is said to control, whereas the kings of these countries would say, we're doing it, this is, this is the take that God has on it through the prophet. God drove out the Canaanite nations. This was at the time of the, the uh, Joshua. God causes nations to fear David. And so they, they showed deference to David. God anoints a Syrian king to do his bidding. And we look at that and say, well, God, of course, he would, he would anoint the Davidic king, the, the child of David who is sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. And we know the priests were anointed. And sometimes a prophet was anointed, we're told in Scripture. Elisha was anointed by Elijah. But to have a prophet of God go up to a foreign country, an enemy country, and anoint another king to do his bidding, God is saying, I'm the one that establishes that king over that nation as well. God is going to use Assyria to deport Israel. Elsewhere in the prophets, it says God picked up Assyria like the rod of his hand, like the big stick in God's hand, and he's going to spank his disobedient children, Israel, the northern kingdom. And then when he's done with that, he raised up Babylon to take the southern kingdom into captivity. And the prophets describe that as God picking up the sword of Babylon in his hand. And with it, he's going to destroy not only his people in Judea uh, and the temple and bring an end to the Davidic line as far as a ruler in Jerusalem, but he's also going to punish all the other nations. In fact, in Ezekiel it says, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, God is talking, he says, Nebuchadnezzar is my hired hand. He's my employee. And he's going to besiege Tyre, but he's not the city of uh, Tyre on the Mediterranean coast, but he's not going to be able to take it. So I'll give him a paycheck of something else. Oh, what can I give him? Uh, he's done this for me in Tyre. Now, what, what can I give him as a suitable paycheck? I know, I'll just give him all of Egypt. That was the paycheck. Because Egypt doesn't control its own destiny. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, did not control his own destiny. The God of Israel controlled the destiny of them both. And he could give it to whom he, he wished. After Babylon, we have Persia. Persia comes in and destroys Babylon, and no one would have expected that because Babylon was a great superpower. But God had said that he is going to destroy the strength of Babylon through his prophets, and sure enough, he did. It was destroyed in one night. You recall, the, you recall the episode where Belshazzar saw the handwriting on the wall, and what we mean by that is he actually saw handwriting on the wall. We use that as a figure of speech today. But he saw a, a dismembered hand that was writing graffiti on the wall. He was having a beer bust. He was having a beer party with, his, uh, with all of his administrators from his kingdom. He wasn't worried about Babylon being taken because Babylon couldn't be taken. And yet God had said that he would dry up the rivers of Babylon and defeat it. And what the Persians did was they diverted the river that went under the city gate, the water gate, and they sent some men in and took control of the gate and then destroyed, in that very night, Belshazzar and all of his deputies were destroyed, uh, the people that were at that party. God ended that kingdom in a night because he's the God of the world. He's not just the God of Israel. 
when Persia came to the throne, God said through Haggai, build the temple. You've been home long enough. You've taken care of your own business. I want you to build the temple. And to do that, I'm going to shake things up. I'm going to shake the world. And the picture there is uh, God is going to pick up the world like a peggy bank and he's going to just shake out this money from Persia and elsewhere and it's going to fall on Judea and they're going to build the temple again. God's going to provide. That passage that says the desire of the nations shall come, it's actually plural. The desirable things of the nations will come. Money, raw materials to build it, permissions that you need, it's all going to come because God is ultimately in control of Persia and is going to use Persia because he wants to bless his people and establish a place of worship once again. It is all about God in these passages. We've got the idea that, oh, it's the kings that are making all these decisions. No, it's God who's making decisions because he wants his name to be glorified in the earth. Not only, not only is he sovereign in the large national things, he's sovereign in the events of life. Uh, we, could, uh, we won't take time to go back and talk about how he was sovereign in the life of David because we've been through that study. You can get the tapes. Um, but Hannah, right at the very beginning, in her prayer of gratitude for God for giving her a son, she says, the Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust. Here she's referring to herself. She was in a lowly state, and God exalted her by giving her a son. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes, make them to inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. He's the one that created everything, and he established everything, and there is an order in which it's to be done, and he is the one who is at work with lowly to bring them to exaltation, but he's the one that has made all of these things. It is ultimately his doing. If we have a kingdom, I suspect there's probably a theology of the king in this section, and there certainly is. When we think of the, a king in Israel, we tend to start that with Saul, that they didn't have a king before, and then they asked for a king, and God gave them a king. But in the theology of these books, God is the king over his people. And Israel's king, or Israel and Judah's king later on, they're just the vice regent. They're just the human representative for the king that is truly ruling in the earth. This is seen for us, for example, in 1 Samuel 8 where Samuel is uh, complaining, he's, he's grumping because the people are asking for a king, and God says this. Um, first of all, we're told that this displeased, this asking for a king displeased, when they said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me, that I should not reign over them. He is the king. But they didn't want him as a king. They wanted an earthly king. They wanted a king that their eye could see, not an invisible king that was in the heavenlies. That's what they would rather have. God gave them a king, gave them Saul, and God gave them David. Now, we think of that and say, okay, he gave them one that wasn't too good and then gave them one that was pretty good, uh, really good, in fact. 
But there's more going on in this story than just one king followed another king. And the first was bad and the second was good. For the first king was from Benjamin and the second king was from Judah. Now Judah had, begin, had been given the right to rule all the way back in the blessing of Jacob upon his children in Genesis 49. The right to rule would go to Judah and the double blessing would go to Joseph. And one of Joseph's sons, Ephraim, was so powerful that it became synonymous with the northern kingdom. When you talked about the north, you'd talk about Ephraim. Uh, and, and that became a, a, major, a, a major name for the northern kingdom. And Judah, the, one of the other sons, would be the southern kingdom. But we need to think, who's this Benjamin? Benjamin is the kid brother of Joseph. They had the same mother. There's going to be an attachment between these people that goes all the way back historically. God had given them a king and set up a rival dynasty that would be played out after the death of David. Even during David's time, there were some that wanted to follow the, the, the people of Saul rather than the house of David. They wanted to go after the house of Saul. Did God know what he was doing when he established the Benjamite first and then a Judean? Sure he did. I think, Scripture teaches us in these books, that the gift of kingship, giving them a king, was actually the means by which he was punishing them for the apostasy they had already shown and they would show through their history. There is a sense in which it was a blessing because it would give rise to a promise of a Davidic king we'll talk about in a minute. But there's another sense in which it started right at the very beginning because God is in control. He put in place a rival dynasty that would ultimately cause the splitting of the kingdom at the time of Solomon's death and the antagonism between those kingdoms. Who's in control here? The king of the north? No. The king of the south? No. The king above is in control, according to the theology of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. This is also illustrated in 2 Samuel 7, where God is talking to David concerning the the covenant that he's going to make with him. And Dave, uh, God says to Nathan, a prophet, that he's to go to David and say, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. So David is ruling over not his people. He's ruling over God's people. And it's described in terms of shepherd and sheep. In the ancient world, kings would describe themselves as shepherds of the people. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the other Assyrian and Babylonian kings, they called themselves by this term. In Israel's history, you have this as well for the leaders. They're called shepherds. Zechariah, you have the three shepherds that aren't any good and God's going to, God's going to get rid of them. Those were political rulers. But the theology of the Old Testament is God's the shepherd. God in heaven is the shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. There's the understanding that though this is a, the flock of God, the shepherd on earth is not the, not the true shepherd. It's just a, an assistant to the real shepherd in heaven. This isn't the real king. The real king is in heaven, ruling over his people. We see as well notice of this in 2 Chronicles it says how the rest of the acts of Solomon, first to last, are they not written in the book of Nathan the prophet? Have you read the book of Nathan the prophet lately? Can't find it in the Old Testament. 
I would argue that some of the material that Nathan wrote found its way into 2 Samuel, probably. In the prophecy of Ahijah, in the visions of Edo the seer concerning Jeroboam the son of Nabat. So you've got, you've got prophets who are coming along the way and they're telling the story of these various kings. 2 Chronicles 12 and 13, the acts of Rehoboam, first to last. Are they not written in the book of Shemaiah the prophet and of Edu the seer concerning genealogies? Then again, the rest of the acts of Abijah, his ways and his sayings, are written in the annals of the prophet Edu. We've got testimony that we have prophets who all the way through Israel's history are writing down about these kings because we have at this point a, the prophetic voice that speaks to the kingdom and sometimes against the kingdom. That's not true in the ancient world. In the ancient world, if you had a powerful king, he would surround himself, he would force all of the priests to kowtow to his his way of doing things, and he would force the prophets. The prophets would, be, would, would line up with the king, and they wouldn't want to upset him. We see that going on in, in Daniel, where the, 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 the uh, soothsayers are stalling for time because they have, to, they have to figure out what to do. What does Nebuchadnezzar want? He's, but not so in Israel. In Israel, you had a prophetic voice that could walk into the chamber of the king and said, you're the man. You're the sinner, and this is what God is going to do for you, do against you because of your sin. There was a time earlier in our biblical history where the prophet, priest, and king were united together. You had Moses, who was a prophet, and he was also a priest. He wasn't the, he wasn't the son of Aaron. He was the brother of Aaron. But he, he performed sacrifices, particularly at the institution of the covenant, so he did a priestly act. And he was also a king, a king of sorts. He was the civic administrator and ruler. You come to Samuel. He was a prophet, but we're also told he was of the line of Levi. He was a priest. And he was the civil administrator. And they wanted to make him king or his son's king, and he wouldn't do it. But, but he did have that kind of quasi-kingly thing about him. When you come to Saul, you've got Samuel and Saul. You've got David and Nathan. You've got Solomon and Nathan. You've got Solomon and others. You've got Jeroboam and others. You've got Ahab and others. There's a prophetic voice that says, you are doing incorrectly, or you are doing correctly, keep doing it. Who's in control? It's not the king. King Ahab wanted his crops, and God says, no rain. And it's the prophet that was the spokesman for God. He was the, ultimately the one who spoke for God because there is a God in heaven and the kingdoms of the earth are just playing their part in God's drama of redemption. The true king was the, uh, was the God who spoke through his prophet. We have as well the covenant to David. In 2 Samuel, it should read, not 1 Samuel. In 2 Samuel 7, God makes a promise to David concerning his uh, children. And he says, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be to me a son. 
Now, now keep that wording that's in purple here. I will be his father and he will be a son to me because we're going to encounter that again. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rods of men and with the blows of the son of men, but my mercy I will not take away from him. Not like I took it away, not as I took it away from Saul before him. Your house and your kingdom shall be established forever. That theme is picked up again in our books. Solomon sins, and what does God say? Because you've done this and have not kept my commandments and my statutes which I commanded you, I will certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give you one tribe, that would be Judah, to your son for the sake of David, uh, my servant David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I've chosen. The, the promise is going to continue on. It's going to be reduced as far as its focus, but there will be a ruler from the line of David. Again, Jehoram sins. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, but the Lord would not destroy Judah for the sake of his servant David as he promised him to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. God would always have a ruler from the line of David in Jerusalem that would be a secure dynasty. That's what God had promised. And again, with the threat of Assyria about them in 730 B.C., Thus says the Lord, Assyria shall not come into the city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with a shield, nor build a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same way he shall return, he shall not come into this city, says the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake, it's all about me, and for the sake of my servant, David. Because God made that promise, he was at work to bring all things together to keep that promise Ultimately, we know that that promise was looking to Jesus Christ. Remember that footnote we had just a moment ago? In Hebrews 1.5, God says concerning our Lord Jesus Christ that for a time he was made lower than the angels, but now he has ascended into heaven. That's very much the picture of a coronation, that Christ is now seated at the right hand of the Father and is ruling on the throne of David in the heavenlies. God is at work to rule this world through the Lord Jesus Christ. And he quotes our passage. He says, to which of the angels did he ever say, I'll be a father to him and he will be a son to me? Only Jesus. And in fact, the other quote in that passage, Psalm 2-7, is part of, the, the Psalm 2 is part of a coronation ritual that took place where the new Davidic king would be seated on the throne and God would say to the surrounding nations, submit to this king. That Davidic king, that called for the submission of temporal powers is a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ who calls for the allegiance of all peoples to himself. When, when God said to David, I'm going to give you a dynasty, that dynasty on earth, that earthly dynasty, lasted until the destruction of the Jewish state modified. But ultimately it was Jesus at his resurrection that begins to fulfill that rulership of our Lord Jesus Christ, even as God had promised to David. So that's a theme that's going to unite both Testaments and is very prominent in our material. Well, we need to think in terms of what does this material mean for the Christian? I think the first thing that we need to realize is that God is still the king of the earth. 
We tend to think that um, rulers get in because they're either voted in or there's a coup or there's an assassination or whatever. That that's how they, they achieve their power. But ultimately, people rule because God has put them there, even the bad rulers. We see no evidence that he's given up that prerogative between the Testaments or that he says that's ever going to come to an end. In fact, Christ says, all authority has been given to me in heaven. We, we'd understand that because he's in heaven. And on earth. It all belongs to Christ. He is King Jesus. And all of the others are just bit players in the great drama of redemption that Christ has. All authority has been given. We have... Um, God rules over kings and will judge them. At a point in time, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. Every political ruler who has ever lived will answer for his crimes before God. With respect to the Christian, God has placed his people here to bring him glory. Now, how has Christ done that, the people of God? Well, he's done so because he's put us in a world. He's told us to go into all the world. Missions is an application of that. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go into all the world. And we seek to do that through missions, through giving, through praying for our missionaries. But we're also told that the one anothering that takes place within the church, the loving one another, the, the uh, submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord that takes place, those one anothering passages that we find particularly in Paul and in John in the New Testament, that, that the unity that we show and the love that we show for one another will testify that God has truly sent Jesus Christ. Our one anothering of each other will testify that what Christ has said is true. How we interact with one another displays before the world that Christ truly was sent by God and that we're truly his disciples. We're like the belt that should draw attention to our great God. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was strategic to bring the time of Christ, the first time he came. We call that the first advent, the first coming of Christ. And the institutions of the world were put in place, and in the fullness of time, God sent his son, Galatians 4 tells us. In part, that fullness of time included the nation of Rome. God put it in place with the highway systems, with a lingua franca for the western part of the, the European uh, part, because he wanted that message to go through the entire Mediterranean area. Rome thought it was building its kingdom. God was using Rome to build his kingdom. And that has continued on. If you think about the, the progress of Christianity, starting in the Holy Land and then going over into Europe and then going into the Americas and the colonization that took place and then through that a great deal going into Africa and now the center of Christianity is, is leaving, is going further west and south as we have missionaries going out from, from uh, South America and from Asia. God is just in church history just circling the world and now it's coming back toward Jerusalem again. The 1040 window is essentially, let's, 
Let's bring this back to where it started. God's just going to blanket this. He's using the, the kingdoms of the world to advance his kingdom. And then finally, it seems to me that we need to consider the whole idea of punishment and reward. When things go badly for us, when we have times of difficulty and trial, it does not mean that we're being punished for a specific sin. Even as in the Old Testament, uh, things went on fine for a while and God didn't punish immediately. But in the New Testament era, we find that sometimes God sends trials to strengthen us. Sometimes he sends them to chastise us. So, so there's not, if you sin in the morning, God will get you by noon sort of thing going on. But we do have the understanding as believers that at a point in time, we will have to answer for our actions. Uh, we call that, the, mercy, we call that the, uh, uh, the judgment seat of Christ. When we will all appear, all Christians will appear before the judgment seat of Christ, we'll give an account. Our, our, our works will be put on display and then they'll be burned and if they're wood, hay, and stubble, things we've done in our own flesh, they're going to be burnt up. If, uh, but we'll be saved. But if they've been done in the power of the Spirit, if they've been done in obedience to God, they'll be the precious, refined metals and stones that come through that fire. There, there are consequences, even in this life, for the believer for patterns of sin, because there are consequences to sin, some that are more observable than others. And so when we come from this material, we need to think in terms of, of what this means for the believer to evaluate and to think about what God has done and what is expected of us. But for the unbeliever, when you stop to think about it, God put in place that entire drama of the Old Testament period. And when we check it against what we know of the archaeology and we know of the accounts in other nations, it fits remarkably close. There's some questions still we have, but it fits remarkably close. This did happen. God did send Christ the first time. And just as sure as he has done that, he is using the events of this world and the kingdoms of this world, poising for that time when he will come the second time, the second coming of Christ. Christ is coming back and he will judge. That's a certainty, according to the word of God. The first time he came should be a warning to us not to neglect this because Christ is certainly going to come again. And I would invite you, if you do not know this Savior, I would invite you to come forward and uh, speak with one of us, uh, one of the staff members, or uh, myself. I'll be up here. Um, if you want to make an appointment with Pastor Larry or someone, they'd be glad to meet with you during the week and just describe how you can be a part of this family, part of this program that God has put in place. The books of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles teach us concerning about God's work in the world and the part we can play in it.